0: Welcome. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, my name is Aaron, uh, teaching pastor here, and I'm really, really thankful that you have joined us today. Uh, we're going to get to continue on in our series in the book of Colossians. Uh, I just want to say thank you to Michelle for being willing to lead. It takes a lot of guts to, to do that, but that is one of the things that I just really, really, really appreciate about Jake is that he is not here to just do this and get all the attention from himself. He wants to raise others up. Uh, and so he's working with Michelle and with uh, Anna and with Sam, and if, if you feel called to, you know, grow as a worship leader, Jake would love to just work with you. He'd love to just invest in you. And so, if that's something you're just feeling drawn to, uh, we invite you to just come be a part of the worship team and, and we'd love to just have you uh, come and lead us in worship. We just believe that the harvest is great. Jesus says it's great, but the laborers are few. Uh, if we are going to be a church that someday helps plant another church, we're going to need to send some people and we'll probably need to send a worship leader. And so, if we can help, you know, raise you up right here and you get to be a part of that, that would just be an absolute joy. So if that's something you want to do, talk with Jake, and, uh, and we'd love to have you uh, lead us in worship. Uh, this morning, as we continue on in Colossians, I want to share a story of something that happened uh, about 10 years ago. It was just shortly after Leanne and I moved to Waverly. I got invited to a gathering of pastors from all around the state of Iowa. And uh, we were doing, you know, in meetings like this, the typical thing of going around the room and introducing ourselves. Well, because I didn't have a church yet, Riverwood wasn't planted, I I couldn't say some of the things that they were saying. And so I decided that when it came to my turn, I would try to throw in a little bit of humor. And so I said something to this effect. Hi, my name is uh, Aaron Bird. Uh, My family and I just recently moved to Waverly, Iowa, where we're seeking to plant a yet-to-be-named church. But I realized, as you hear me say that, you're probably wondering how in the world I'm a church planter because I realize I don't look like one because I'm not wearing a flannel shirt, I I don't have any tattoos, I don't smoke cigars, I, I don't drink beer. In fact, I don't even drink coffee. So you're probably wondering what in the world qualifies me to plant a church. I'm still trying to figure that out myself. Now, thankfully, a few of them chuckled and laughed but I'm not that funny. So I knew that they wouldn't like, you know, break down a guffawing. But what made my joke work halfway was that there was some truth to it. Now, when I would read the books about church planting, and I would listen to the podcast about church planting, what I heard was you need to have this passionate love for Jesus and this call. But when I went to the church planting conferences, when I went to meetings like this one I was at, when I was in conversation with other church planters, I heard a very different story. What they seem to indicate is you need a cool shirt, $100 jeans, you need a couple tattoos, and a love for beer and Jesus. Well, I had Jesus, and that was about it. And as I was being these conversations You could hear the unwritten rules, the assumptions, then you're not a good church planter. Are you sure you're actually called to this? Have you ever had someone just have certain assumptions about you when they learn just this much? Maybe they found out what town you grew up in, or maybe they they heard what college you attended. And they assumed certain things about you. Maybe the assumptions were good, but also maybe they were negative. Maybe you have coworkers or family members who assumed certain things about you when they found out who you were planning to vote for in the last election. Maybe you have classmates who, when they found out that you're really passionate about a certain genre of music or movies, assumed other things about you. Or maybe you've received just assumptions based on your appearance. People have said comments because of your height or lack of. Maybe your hairstyle. Maybe your skin color. What happens when people make these sort of assumptions, we start sensing that they have certain expectations for us. And those expectations begin to turn into pressure. Suddenly, we start feeling pressured to do certain things or believe certain things or say certain things because, well, if you're this way, we assume you're also this way. It's what we Americans do. We learn this much about somebody and we think we know this much. And so we apply this pressure upon others or we feel the pressure to do or adopt certain things. So when Leanne and I felt called into church planting, I was the young adult pastor on staff at a church in Cedar Rapids. When it became clear that they didn't have the same call to church planting, we knew we needed to go and learn. So we went to Kansas City where we did a leadership residency. One of the leaders at this church said to me, this is about three, four weeks in, she says to me, Aaron, before your year is done here, you're going to be drinking beer and you're going to have a couple tattoos. Now, she ended up being wrong on both. However, that stuck in my head. And there was part of me thinking, am I doing this wrong? Like, I don't like the taste of beer, but maybe I need to force myself to like it because that's what a good church planner would do. Now, I'm not opposed to getting a tattoo. In fact, I've had the same tattoo idea in my head for like 15 years. I probably should just go ahead and do it. But I started wondering, like, do I need to get that tattoo so that I look cooler and more people might then for one to come and be a part of our church? I felt this pressure. She assumed this is what's going to happen, and I started thinking, maybe I do need to behave that way and do these certain things. The Apostle Paul, to this church in Colossae, is going to address some religious assumptions. And the reason he addresses these assumptions is because he knows that those assumptions will turn into pressure. Pressure. There is certain pressure that these brand new believers at this small little church in Colossae are feeling that maybe I need to go and adopt this sort of behavior or I need to think these certain things. I need to do these things in order to make God happy. And Paul is writing them to not only protect them from these assumptions and pressure, but to also free them. That's what I hope for you today is that if you're coming in with the sense that I need to do certain things, believe certain things in order to be accepted by God, that today what you will hear is that you are free in Christ. If you have put your identity, your faith in Jesus, you're free. And there's no pressure to have to force yourself to adopt these certain things to make other people happy when your heart is centered on Jesus. And I invite you to see this in the book of Colossians. So if you brought a Bible, please open it up to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Today we are going to be finishing up chapter 2 in Colossians. Uh, we will be doing verses 16 through 23. If you do not have a Bible, we will be putting the scripture on the screen so that you can read along with us. But if you already have a Bible on your phone, feel free to pull that out. We are fine with digital Bibles. Uh, If you'd rather go old school, uh, we have some paper copies back on our resource table Uh, after our worship gathering. You can stop by there and pick up one of those, and we would love to just make that our gift to you. We really think that your learning is enhanced when you move away from the screen to something in your hands on Sunday. So that's why we want you to have something in your hands, but then we hope that you will take what you heard here and it will translate over to Monday and Tuesday. And so we want you to have a Bible so that you can go back to it and read it and study it and begin to apply these things into your life. All right, so as we get ready to uh, read 16 through 23, let's uh, pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are about to come to your holy scriptures. We are coming to this, uh, all of us, in a different place. Uh, Some of us, we've had a really, really, really good week. Some of us, we've had a tough one. Some of us, it's been so busy, we've barely given you any thought. Some of us, we're walking in here excited to be with you because we are ready and eager to learn. Some of us, Father, we are being hampered by our past. Some of us, we're worried about our future. Some of us, we're walking in here just being grieved by sin, whether it be our own or the, the sin of those around us. And so, Father, it is absolutely ridiculous to think that I, as one person, would be able to speak in a way to, to say this as each person needs so, Father, that is why we come to you. We ask that you, through your Holy Spirit, would be our teacher, that I would just simply be the instrument that you use, but ultimately they would hear from you. And, and when we leave this place, it wouldn't be about whether or not this was a good sermon or Aaron did a good job. The, the, what we're walking out is just we're in awe of who you are and what you've done through a cross and an empty tomb. So Father, I pray that you would help us to not just set aside these things from our past week or the things that are coming ahead. Instead, right now, we would just bring them to you, we'd lay them before you, and we ask that you would speak through them to us, directly to our hearts and minds, so that we hear what you have for us, and we become the people you call us to be. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask for this. Amen. All right, so Colossians chapter 2, join me at verse 16. from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The Apostle Paul starts off his uh, passage basically saying, do not let people judge you. But if you stop to think about that, how? Like, how do you get someone to stop judging you? Like, I I can't make you not think certain things about me. So does that mean Paul's wrong? And so therefore the Bible's wrong? No, no. What Paul is saying is don't let their judgment affect you. Don't let their assumptions turn into pressure. Uh, When I uh, was a kid, it's, it's a bit embarrassing to admit but there were times where I would have a shirt that I really liked, or maybe I got some new shoes, but then I would get teased for them. The assumption was I wasn't either cool enough for them or, or, or whatever, and, and, and so I would stop wearing them. And so I had perfectly good shoes in my closet that I never wore, perfectly good shirts that just stayed at the bottom of the drawer because to pull them out would probably mean I would end up getting teased. I allowed them to judge me. Paul does not want you to be like 13-year-old Aaron. He doesn't want you worried about, what are other people going to think of me? Because if they assume these certain things, they're going to expect certain things, and oh no, this is the pressure. He's just like, nah, don't worry about it. But I want you to kind of understand the kind of pressure that these brand new believers were under. They were under two different types of pressure. First, they were under pressure to Judaism, and then they were also under pressure to uh, paganism and mysticism. First, let's look at the uh, pressure that they felt under Judaism. We see this in verse 16. Paul, after saying, don't let anyone pass judgment on you, he mentions five things. He says, don't let them uh, pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These five things all come out of either the Mosaic law, this law that God established with the Jewish people, or in traditions that some of the Jewish leaders over the centuries have added. When it comes to food and drink, there were certain things that they were not supposed to eat or not supposed to drink as part of their faith and their worship of God. There were also different festivals that God had asked them to institute, like the the Feast of Tabernacles, the um, Passover. Uh, The new moon simply refers to the start of each month and and an opportunity to worship and remember God. But then the Sabbath, that was one of the big, big ones in Judaism, that uh, that from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, no work was supposed to take place. supposed to be a complete day of rest. But what I want you to realize is that you eat and drink every single day, so there would be daily pressure. The Sabbath was every week, so there was weekly pressure. The new moon was the start of a new month, so there was monthly pressure. And these feasts kept happening annually, so there was annual pressure. In other words, there was this constant religious pressure for them to do all these things in order to make God happy. It was constant work. So what would happen if you didn't do these things? Like, like, what would happen if you didn't quite honor the Sabbath? You, you went out and, oh, you kind of did a job. Or, or, or what if you didn't, you know, you got sick during the Passover and maybe you couldn't, you know, be a part of it? What, what if you did slip up and you ate something that you weren't supposed to? Now, Paul does not tell us. So we're having to infer here from the rest of Colossians and the rest of the Scriptures But there was this underlying sense that you had to do all of these things continually and constantly to keep God happy. And if God didn't approve, if you kept on his bad side, he's not going to let you into the afterlife. Now, at this time, especially at the time of Jesus, there were questions about whether or not there really was an afterlife. Some Jews believed there was, but some did not. It was kind of a newer concept, and it was gaining popularity. And Jesus began to talk about this afterlife. So he firmly fell into that camp of, yep, there is a heaven. And so they started teaching, if you don't observe the food, the feasts, the Sabbath, the new moon celebrations, if you don't observe these properly and correctly, you don't get heaven. Can you imagine the spiritual and emotional pressure that would put on someone? I think some of these brand new Jesus followers there in Colossae started wondering, like, oh, maybe we're not doing this right. Like, maybe we start with Jesus. Like, Jesus dies on the cross for our sin. We put our faith in him, but now we got to move on to the food and the feasts and all of these other things. And maybe we should do these things, because, like, what's it going to hurt? Like, you know, maybe we start with Jesus, like Paul said, but we do these things, and just in case, like, okay, this is like risk management. We're just going to do these things to keep God off our back just in case we're wrong. And so there was this pressure to give in. But that's not the only pressure they're facing. They're also facing pressure from the culture and some of the cultural religions of their day, particularly paganism and mysticism. And we see that in verse 18. Paul says, let no one disqualify you. In our term, it would be don't let anyone cancel you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind many of these mystics of that day and age it was all about these angels or, or the visions that you would have right some of this also dipped a little bit into paganism but the word i want to center on there is what the english standard version which i'm using today has their asceticism All right, what i learned this week is that in the Greek, it's not asceticism. The word is humility. And so at first, that really kind of bugged me because part of the reason I choose to use the English Standard Version is that the translators tried for a word-for-word translation. Now, that makes it slightly more stilted, which is why for some people I don't recommend it for your own daily reading. But as far as like preaching, learning, studying, as I lead different you know, Bible studies through the week, it ends up being really helpful so it kind of bugged me that they did not translate the word humility. They used the word asceticism. But then after I began to dive in, I began to understand why they didn't go word for word. They went more for the thought. Because when it comes to humility, the type of humility Paul's talking about here is not true humility. We learn what true humility is in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, we hear that you were to consider the needs of others before your own. And the example for all of us, the example for all of us is Jesus. Jesus had no sin, and yet Jesus put our needs before his own. He, didn't, he did not need to go to the cross to pay for his own sin. He was sinless, but he knew we needed it. That's humility. That's not the type of humility he's talking about in verse 18. The type of humility that Paul is talking about is a self-centered humility humility. The reason they thought it was humility is because what they did was they denied themselves. Now, it wasn't humility because it was all about themselves, but yet the way they did it was they denied themselves any luxury, any excess. So for instance, they would go to extreme forms of fasting. They would also uh, try to keep out any comfort. So they wouldn't have any sort of mat for, for their bed. They might sleep straight down on the ground on the floor. They might only own one, maybe two outfits. The idea was that the more you suffered in this life, the more holy you became and the more likely you were to earn that afterlife and keep your God happy. Now, I don't want you to mistake that 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 means all of the stuff is bad. No, some of this stuff is actually good, like fasting. That can be a really good spiritual discipline. Fighting materialism. It might be really good for you and your soul. Or even go back to some of the the Jewish pressure. The Sabbath. Taking a rest, taking a break. Could be really, really restorative. Or enjoying a feast. It could be just a time filled with joy and worship. These are good things. But what was happening was that the pressure was you need to take this good thing and you make it the primary thing. Instead, you replace Jesus and you put in your fasting. You take out the gospel and you put in the Sabbath. You take all of the stuff out and you insert these practices and now it becomes the practice and that is what's needed to keep God happy. In other words, it is now what you do and not about what Christ has done. And that is why Paul is warning them. Saying, you've got to keep, you know, you've got to keep things where it is and keep things, uh, keep keep what matters. That's why he says, I think I'm ready for verse 17, yeah. Go to verse 17. He says there, and keep in mind, this is coming off of what he said in verse 16 about Judaism and those pressures, but it also applies to verse 18. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come. Now, that means some of these things are good, all right? These are things to come, I mean, think about it. The Sabbath, the whole idea for it was rest. What do you think heaven's going to be? It's going to be rest. It's a shadow of things to come. So these are good things. However, there is still a shadow. He says next, the substance belongs to Christ. We're going to talk about this verse here in just a little bit, a little bit more. But the substance, the the center, the core is Jesus. It's, It's all to be about him. Now, down in verse 23, we see Paul say, now, some of these things, they sound good. This, this sounds like wisdom, right? After all, it might be impressive that you fast every Friday. Right? You might feel really holy to uh, listen to Christian music all the time. You, know, you, you might feel really better about your faith if you, I'm using a certain Bible translation. Like, we, we can take these good things And it sounds like it's wise. And and let me me just clarify. Sometimes this is wise, right? Sometimes it is wise to fast, whether it be from food or from social media or from Netflix, like you fast for a time with a, a purpose. So some of these things can be wise. But what happens is it sounds really, really wise and yet we're replacing who Christ is and what he's done because he says all of these things will fade And they're empty. Notice the very end of verse 23. He says, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I remember years ago hearing about a pastor who just was bound and determined to like asceticism. So he refused to let him and his new bride own a bed. They were going to sleep on the floor. And so she decided not to complain. So she made up a blanket, a sheet on the floor, put some pillows there. And they slept on the floor. And then she just prayed that God would give them a bed. Well, sure enough, his low back started to hurt. And he ends up in conversation with his friend. And they start talking, and the friend finds out that he does not own a bed. He's like, what are you doing? He goes, well, you know, it just seems like, you know, materialistic to have a mattress. You know, I just want to really give my whole life to God. And the guy's like, dude, this is bad for your body. You need a bed. I happen to own a mattress factory You can come down to the warehouse and you can pick any mattress you want, and I will buy it. Suddenly, this pastor went from, no, we can't have any mattress, to, what is the most expensive, best mattress in this entire place? He thought that this would purify him, but it didn't. It did not remove the indulgence of his flesh, it was still there. Paul's saying, why are you doing this? Why are you going after these things, trying to get rid of them when it's not accomplishing what you think it is going to accomplish? So now we have to ask ourselves, all right, so how do we go about doing this then? How do we keep ourselves from slipping into this form of thinking? In other words, how do we keep the substance of the gospel as the substance of our life? I think it comes from the very first word in today's passage. Back in verse 16, He starts with the word, therefore. Now, a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at verses 6 and 7, we talked about this. So if you were with us, forgive me for repeating myself. But whenever you read the word, therefore, in the Bible, you need to ask yourself, what is that therefore, therefore? Because that word is a connector word. In other words, what you just read, what you just heard, now ties directly into what is about to come. Well, we've been on this side of the therefore. We've seen we're not to let people judge us. Why? What's what happened right before it? Well, if you were with us last week when I did my little court case and I presented both the prosecution and the defense, when you heard the defense, we were seeing that when a person puts their faith in Jesus, everything absolutely fundamentally changes for them on the spiritual level. What we saw was that you are spiritually circumcised. Just as a Jewish male was circumcised in order to be accepted by God, when you put your faith in Jesus, your heart, your sinful nature is circumcised, it's removed, and you are now accepted by God. We also saw that we are spiritually dead in our sins, but we were raised with Christ. Just as Christ was raised physically from the dead, we have now, when we put our faith in him, we are raised spiritually from the dead. So we are now made alive in Christ. But then we also saw that we each have a spiritual debt We have such a huge debt against God, we we will never be able to pay it off. And yet when Christ died on the cross, our spiritual debt was forgiven. It was canceled. In fact, he says it was nailed to the cross. Your debt was killed. So if you've now been accepted by God, raised with Christ, and your debt has been completely canceled, therefore, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. If your attention is on others and on yourself, their assumptions turns into pressure. But if your attention is on Christ and what he's done for you, you don't care what other people might think or say about you because it's all about him and what he's already done, not about what I need to do to try to prove myself. In fact, Paul takes this thought a little farther. Down in verse 20, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Twenty-eight years ago, I was able to convince Leanne Wojciechowski to say yes to marriage. So we stood on a stage in front of a pastor and our family and said, I do. But now imagine that I this week sadly pass away. If in a year or two Leanne goes out on a date with a guy, she's not cheating. If that guy ends up being really awesome and kind and wonderful and is going to take care of her and be a great dad to my, uh, my adult children, and she says yes to marriage with him, she's not cheating on me. It's not adultery. She's not a polygamist. Because my death ends the mar- marital covenant that we have. Likewise, God creates humans through Abraham, establishes the Jewish people, and establishes a covenant with them. He establishes that covenant further through Moses. And there were certain things that the Israelites were to do and for God to do. But through Abraham, in Genesis 15, God says, basically they do this little ritual that there were these animals that got cut in half and they're laid apart and their blood mixes. And then God walks through the path twice. Typically, one party would walk through and the other party would walk through. And they would say, if I do not uphold my part of the the covenant... You may do to me what we've done to these animals. You may kill me. You may cut me. But God walked through twice because he knew that the people would not be able to uphold their end. And he was saying, I'll pay it. I'll pay your sacrifice. I will be cut for you. And so when Christ went to the cross, he was cut because we did not uphold our end. We sinned against him. And the old covenant, the agreement of we'll do certain things to keep God happy, that was now fulfilled. It came to a close. And so we've, in a sense, died to that. And a new covenant was established, a new marriage. And instead of just being between God and the Jews, it became between God and all people. Anyone can put their faith in Jesus because they are saying, God, I accept the fact that you walked through that blood path me, You were cut for me, you took the penalty, and you've now invited me into this relationship. So Paul's saying, so if therefore you've in a sense died to that old way, why would you go back to it? Why would you try to be living underneath some sort of covenant that's been done with? It's it's over, it's fulfilled. You now have this freedom to live in this place of a relationship with God. Why would you go back to it when you've died to it? Instead, find your freedom and your acceptance in Christ. That's why in verse 19, Paul encourages us to hold fast to the head. The head is Christ. And he, as the head, is from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Your joy, your satisfaction, your growth... Will come through Christ. It is not gonna come through your fasting. It is not gonna come through the Sabbath. It is not gonna come through denying yourself. It's going to come through Jesus. Now, to find yourself in Christ, sometimes you might need to set these other things aside. But ultimately, it is to drive you to Christ because it's through Him your growth is found. He is the head, He is the center. Now, typically, I like to end my sermon with um, some ideas of, okay, so how can we do this? How can we continue to make Jesus the center? Well, we're actually going to see that next week. Very, very rarely do I get the pleasure of saying, so join us next week for the exciting conclusion. But I do this time. Next week, we get to hear Paul start showing us, telling us, so here's how to keep Christ as the head, to keep him as the center. Now, by all means, feel free to cheat, read ahead, go into Colossians 3, get an idea of what we're going to be looking at together next week. But we're going to begin to see, so now how do we do this? So instead of going to some application points, what I want to do is I want to take you back to something we saw earlier, and I want to explain something further as we prepare to move into our time of communion. Back in verse 17, we saw Paul tell us that these things, this food and drink, the festivals, the new moon, the Sabbath, that these are a shadow of the things to come, But the substance belongs to Christ. Well, again, this week in my study, I learned that the word there for substance, it's not in the Greek. The word there is actually body. Once again, I found myself going, what's up? Like, the whole point of me using the English standard version is for that word-for-word idea. And yet, once again, they've translated the thought behind it. But as I dug deeper, I think they made the right choice. You see, for many of us, many of you grew up in church or you've been around Riverwood long enough that you've heard that the body of Christ is the church. And so if you were to read that there, the body belongs to Christ, you might start thinking, oh, he's talking about the church, but he's not. What he's trying to do is contrast the idea of shadow with something else. You see, a shadow has no substance. You can't walk over and pick up a shadow. You can't make a shadow hot or cold. You can't, you know, like, stick your fork in and and enjoy eating some of the shadow. Like, it's just there. It fades. It's gone. It has no substance. Instead, the shadow indicates that there is something of substance, that there is something of reality, that there is something with a body. And the body is Christ, which means those things he talked about in 16, and I would also argue in verse 18, they're all things that point to Jesus. So, so let me give you an example. Uh, at the end of verse 16, he uses the word Sabbath. The Sabbath was very, very, very key and critical to the Jewish people. Right? They, they, they upheld this thing religiously. That's why they got so bothered when Jesus and his disciples, while walking one day on the Sabbath, they were plucking some heads of grain. Right? It, that's harvesting. That's work. These are bad, evil people. You, therefore, are not a good Messiah. You clearly are not the Messiah. You are not from God, because if you were from God, you would know we don't do any work. To them, it was all about that day. But as we learn from Hebrews 3 and 4, the Sabbath, the purpose was, was rest. It was to find our identity and our rest in God. And in Hebrews 3 and 4, we see that that rest is ultimately found in Christ. The Sabbath Day was a shadow pointing to the reality of the rest found in Jesus and the gospel. So likewise, he mentions in verse 16, feasts. One of the feasts that the Jews upheld was the Passover. The purpose of the feast, the purpose of the Passover, was to remind them of what God had done. That he had rescued them out of slavery to Egypt and brought them into the promised land, into freedom. Well, for us Christians, our sacrament of communion comes out of the Passover. But instead of reminding us of being brought out of freedom from slavery in Egypt, we are reminded that Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, brought us out of slavery to sin. The feast is the shadow pointing to the substance of Christ. So as we go to these communion elements today, May you realize that these things are but a shadow. And they are to point to the reality of Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, and this is your first time with us, we at Riverwood celebrate an open table, meaning you are welcome to come. Now, if you're a first-time guest and you're, you're here, but you're, you're not totally sure about Christianity, you're not sure about Jesus, then I'm just going to ask that you very respectfully not go to this table. Because this shadow points to the substance, to the reality of Jesus. That Jesus gave his life for us. So when you hold those elements, what you're doing is you're saying that that bread represents the body of Christ. And that cup represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And as you take those into your body, you're saying his act, his story, his work is the very core of who I am. This is a part of me. But if if that's you, Even if this is your first time here, then I invite you to come so that this shadow might drive you to the reality and substance of Christ. So, Jake, would you come and lead us? I'll invite uh, Michelle and uh, Veronica to come up too. As we get ready to go to the table, let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for what you uh, wrote to us through Paul. I just ask that you would forgive uh, any of us who have been replacing you with certain behaviors and actions. We, we have thought that our uh, righteousness is found through our own moralism or through uh, certain things. F- forgive us, Father, if we have uh, taken Christ off the throne and we've tried to put something else there. Even, Father, forgive those of us who have tried to um, become holier by forcing ourselves to, to go through the pain um, that, that somehow we, we have thought that we've got to do this work to, to make ourselves cleaner or, or holier. And, and what we've done is we've replaced Jesus. God, I pray you'd help us to be people who are fully centered on you. We'd be centered on the cross. We'd be centered on the resurrection. We'd be centered upon the very act and, and person of, of Jesus. Realizing that, that what he did is enough. We don't, we, there's nothing we can do to add to it And there's definitely nothing we can do to take away from it. That the cross truly was enough. And so, Father, that is the heart and mind that we we come uh, to to this table. That as as we take these elements, we would remember what Christ has done. And that this shadow, these elements, would point to the reality of who you are and what you've done. And that, that today, we would have a sense then of that freedom the freedom of the forgiveness of our sins, but also the freedom to not worry about the judgment of others, to fear that that people are trying to tell us how to follow you, that we have to engage in certain acts. Instead, we want to center upon you. Because God, I believe that your Holy Spirit is the one who can show us what we need to do, what you're calling us to do. Because Lord, there may be some people here that they have been caught up in materialism. And part of their surrender, part of the way to keep Christ at the center is to say no to maybe some purchases. There's some people here that they've been quite full of the things of this world. And and what you're calling them to do, to put Christ at the center, is to fast for a time, whether it be from some food, whether it be from social media, whether it be from certain forms of entertainment. God, some of us here, we've been so busy. We've not been resting. And right now, this is our time to enter into your rest But God, help us to not get these things mixed up, to take these good things and make them ultimate things. Instead, during this time of communion, would you just remind us that Jesus is the ultimate. He's the primary. He is the head. He is the substance. He is the center. So God, that is why we approach (laughs) your throne of grace with confidence because of what Christ has done, but we also approach with humility. We come to this table realizing we could not have saved ourselves. There was nothing we could do to earn your favor. Instead, we come humbly and joyfully because of what you've done through Christ. And may we now celebrate the freedom found in him as we partake of these elements. So God, may you be glorified in this song, in our prayers, and through this act of taking the beautiful sacrament of communion. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.